Hello everyone and welcome to today's podcast. My name is Nikosha, but y'all can call me Nikki. I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. So no matter who you are, we all experience a rough week every now and then. You know those weeks that when you try to describe it, you are just left speechless and clueless. Those weeks that want to make you rip your hair out because of all the stress or just heaviness you have felt that week. That is honestly how my week went for me. So I just... I just needed to vent and talk about it. So let's just get right in to the events that I've experienced this week. It all started Sunday evening when I was preparing to go to San Francisco in the morning to go see my team of doctors. If you didn't know, I was born with bilateral cleft lip and palate, which means that my palate as well as my lip were not fused to themselves when I was born. So basically, my top lip was not fused at my cupid's bow. It was like two halves of my top palate, uh, my top lip, and then the same thing with my palate. So I had a huge gap when I was born. And it's kind of a almost a lifelong thing that you have to deal with. There's a lot of procedures, a lot of steps to try and get your, I guess, mouth to be as normal as possible. And there are a few main surgeries that bilaterals and I think it's monolateral, where people just have one lip. Sometimes people have lips, sometimes people have palates, sometimes people have both. I'm one that has both. And their main There are a few main surgeries that all of us kind of go through. There is the fusion of your palate and or the fusion of your lip where they kind of put it together. There is a jaw surgery oftentimes and then depending on who you are there is a rhinoplasty which is basically kind of a nose job. And right now, I'm preparing for a jaw surgery. So they're going to move my top jaw. I want to say it's about six millimeters forward. It's a really extensive procedure, and I will be in recovery for about two weeks plus four more weeks, um, just trying to get used to life after the surgery. So I have a team of doctors in San Francisco who I have worked with literally since I was three days old, who I have worked with literally since I was 10 days old. And I was not born or ever lived in San Francisco, so my entire 18 years of life, I have been traveling to and from San Francisco every couple of months for orthodontistry, dentistry, everything having to do with my mouth, essentially. And I have a team of doctors who are kind of like the, I guess if it were a, like, average business, they would be kind of the managers. So they kind of oversee everything. And 
I was going to go see them on Monday. So Sunday night, previously on Saturday, I had gone to the new super safe mart that they opened in my town. And I had purchased a tea that I had seen someone else drinking and they said it was really good and I thought, hey, it's cheap. I might as well try it. This tea I found out had caffeine in it. And I have not had caffeine in a while. So I was already trying to mentally prepare for the caffeine rush I was about to experience. And I drank almost the entire can, which the can is two servings. So I already kind of knew that I was going to be on one that night. So I decided that I was going to sit in the living room and flip through the channels to see what I could find on TV. So I saw that there was a movie playing that I had heard about but had never seen. This movie was Pearl Harbor. Which, if you have not seen, um, as you can tell from the title, it is recounting the day that the Japanese decided to attack Pearl Harbor. And I turned the movie on because I had never seen it before and I was interested. I turned it on right at the second that the soldiers at the Pearl Harbor base were trying to get to their aircrafts so they could counterattack the Japanese. So the next, I want to say, half hour was essentially a battle as well as the result of the battle. And it was very gruesome. Um, if you have younger people in your family or you have a weak stomach, I would not suggest this movie. And after watching about a half hour of that battle and having caffeine in me, it was not great for my psyche that night. Basically, I felt very heavy and I was wide awake because of the caffeine, so I did not get very much sleep that night. I didn't fall asleep until close to 1 o'clock in the morning, and I had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go to San Francisco the next day, so I was not a happy camper. <laughs> So I wake up the next morning and it's four o'clock in the morning. I am a wreck. I somehow muster up enough motivation to put makeup on and do my hair because honestly when I went to bed that night I was just kind of like I'm not gonna put on any makeup. I'm just gonna go looking horrible as hell because I my mind was somewhere else. So I muster up enough energy to put some makeup on and look semi-presentable. And I step outside and am automatically freezing. It is 30 degrees outside and I know San Francisco is going to be colder than it's going to be in my hometown later that day. So I had two jackets with me, a blanket, my neck pillow, and my mini backpack that had all my stuff in it so you know i was ready to go uh we got to san francisco a little late well i should say we got to the bay area a little later than we wanted to and we got stuck in traffic 
on the Bay Bridge for about 20 minutes to half an hour. And one thing you got to know about me is that one of my fears and one of my anxiety triggers is the open ocean. I cannot swim and I will not get into water where I cannot stand up or I cannot see the bottom. If I'm, you know, on a pier and I'm looking down at the ocean, you know, I'm fine. But put me on a boat in the middle of the ocean where I cannot see land, I will go into a panic attack, probably. Um, that or I will, I don't even know. Um, so when we're going over that bridge, sometimes, you know, I have a little anxiety when we start slowing down. Because since... I do have generalized anxiety. One of my things is that I just, no matter how hard I try not to, I imagine the worst thing possible. So I always imagine when we get stuck on a bridge that the bridge is going to somehow snap and we are going to fall into the water and I'm not going to be able to swim and I'm going to die. So when we were stopped, dead set, like, not moving at all on the bridge, I was like, this is a nightmare. Granted, it is a fairly newer version of what the Bay Bridge used to be, so I felt a little bit safer versus if we were on the older one, but it was not fun. So, thankfully, we make it to my appointment um, on time, and I can talk about what happened with that later on in another podcast if you guys are interested in that so then you know we get on the bus come home and i'm just out like a light as soon as i sit down and put my pillow up because i'm so exhausted the caffeine rush is long gone and i'm realizing i do not have enough energy to be traveling like this and then i come home and tuesday the very next day I know that I have to wake up at 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, actually, I have to wake up at 7 and be over to where I'm supposed to be by 9 o'clock in the morning because I have jury duty. Yes, the coveted thing that makes you feel like you are an adult. Jury duty. So if you're unfamiliar with how this all works, basically, when you are a U.S. citizen, you can register to vote when you are 18 or older, or you can pre-register when you are 16 or 17. I pre-registered during the first March for Our Lives rally. I want to say I was 17, but I could have been 16 turning 17. So when I was 18, I was autom automatically already a voter. So when you register to vote, you... Pretty much, it's also a given that every two and a half years or so, it I believe it can be longer, um, you can randomly get summoned for jury duty. So I'll just kind of walk you through what I experienced because you go through, I guess you could call them rounds about if you... So the whole premise of it is that they basically get voters to become a jury panel to serve in a court case. So, I had to be at the courthouse by 9 a.m., so I get there at 9 a.m., 
and, you know, I check in and everything. They tell us they're going to get started by about 10. They're just like, good morning, everyone. We have a lot of cases today, so we're going to need a lot of jurors. And I'm like, okay. So we actually don't get started until 11. So they have about two pages of names that they call out, and not everyone in the room gets chosen. You know, well, actually, the night before the day that you're supposed to go in, you call and you see if your group number is being summoned that day still or not. So as you can tell, my group was still summoned that day. So, you know, back to the guy who's kind of giving us, I guess you could call it orientation. He's giving us the rundown of what's going to happen that day. He says, okay, we have a list of names here. I'm going to list them off and you guys are going to be excused for lunch and you need to be back here by 1.30 so we can check you in and get you all set up. And the rest of you, please wait a minute and we will get you all checked out and you guys can go about your day. So I guess we're about to find out who the lucky and unlucky people are. And I'm thinking in my head, which is which? So, you know, he starts calling names and I'm sitting there thinking, not me, not me, not me, not me. And it's not an alphabetical order. It's just random. And then I hear Nikosha Daniels. And in my mind, I just go, great, I have to come back. So it's close to 1130 at this point. So... He says, I want to say like six more names. And then he says, okay, you guys are excused for lunch. So I'm like, great. So we all go upstairs and we leave the building and we just have to make sure that we're back by 1.30. So, you know, I go down to the subway down the street, have some lunch, and then I decide I'm going to go back early because frankly, I got nothing better to do. So I go in and I charge my phone, sit, watch YouTube for a bit. So everyone comes back at 1.30 and they tell us that we're going to get started around 2. We actually don't get started until 2.30. So they send us all upstairs to the courtroom and there's about 40 of us. We sit in, I guess you could call it the audience area where like they have all the seats for people to sit in. And they just, you know, there's... A bunch of people in there and they just kind of give us the rundown of what's going to happen and I'm not a hundred percent entirely sure if I can talk about who the people were in there or anything like that so I'm just gonna skip that part but what I can tell you is that you know the judge is in there and the judge calls up 18 people and it's completely random out of the 40 of us so they have the 18 people sit in the jury panel and so she's kind of giving them the lowdown of what's going to happen, what the case is about, all this stuff, and she has questions for them to answer. And the rest of us who are sitting in the audience have to listen to those questions as well because we might get called up to take someone's place and we have to have an answer for them. So depending on how you answer the questions or based on your situations or who you know, uh, if you know anything about certain topics, um, you have to answer. So if you have an answer for a question, then they 
kind of ask you, you know, what do you know or who do you know? Um, you know, can you put aside that and focus on this case? Basically, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find jurors that are not going to be biased and are going to disregard outside influences and judge the case solely based on the evidence and what is said within the four walls of the courtroom. So they get to a few people and a few people have answers regarding like certain beliefs that they have or certain situations they're in or people that they know and so on. So as they start doing this, people get excused. And as one person gets excused, they call up another person from where the rest of us are sitting to take that person's place. So this goes on until I want to say about three o'clock and then they tell us, okay, we're going to take a 20 minute recess and we will resume this uh, 20 minutes later. So we all go downstairs for about 20 minutes and then we go back upstairs and resume the process. So I'm sitting here thinking, am I going to get called up? Am I not? I don't know. We're essentially just waiting for the last person in C18 to say, no, I don't have any answers to those questions. So that way they can have a full 18 and the rest of us can go home. So then we get to the last couple of people and she Earlier, she had let a few people go based on their situations and the circumstances that they were in were similar to mine. So I didn't know if she was going to let me go as well, if I were to get called up, or if she would just say, you know, so many people have used that excuse, I'm not going to. I didn't know it was going to happen. So I'm sitting there, you know, just like trying to make sure that I remember my answers and then there is a person who she excuses and then I hear Nikosha Daniels so I get called up and I am in seat 18 so everyone is hoping that I don't have any answers to any of the questions um, regarding like why I for some reason couldn't be a juror on this case so the rest of them can go home and she gets to the second person before me. So there are two people before me. So she gets to the first person before me and then the second person before me. And neither one of them have anything to say. So she gets to me and with my circumstances, I basically, I couldn't be a juror. So I tell her my circumstances and so on. And then she excuses me. And right as I leave, they pretty much adjourn for the day because it's getting close to the time that the courthouse is going to start packing up shop. So I barely made it out because everyone else, I believe, had to come back the next day so they could finish and get their full 18 jurors. And I was so happy to finally be out of there. I had had a long three days at this point. I just wanted to go home and relax. So I was very happy that I got out of having to be on the panel. But, you know, in the future, if I get summoned again, I might be interested in just staying on the panel. I don't know. But at this point, I was just not in the right state of mind to be able to stay on a panel. Um, plus, I also had some other things that 
I had going on this week and so on. So then comes Wednesday and I decide, you know, I've had a long week. I really need some sleep. So I decide that I'm not going to go to my morning class, but I go to my afternoon class and I don't know. I'm still trying to get over the week I've had and just kind of relax, take a breather. I don't have any more classes this week, so I'm trying to just be zen, probably go to the gym, work on some fitness, you know, just kind of take this weekend to rebuild my mental state because it has just been stretched thin this week. One thing that I actually did want to share with you guys that was very interesting um, happened last night, actually. So I am, you know, a big travel enthusiast. I love going on adventures. I love learning about different cultures and traveling, if not physically, but, you know, learning about different places and learning about history. I'm a big history person. You know, I love learning about just different things. And I have recently fallen in love a second time with Expedition Unknown. Expedition Unknown is a TV show starring Josh Gates, where he basically travels the world and goes on expeditions, um, trying to find, you know, whether it be memorabilia or evidence that, you know, this group was in this area and so on. And there were two new episodes last night. One is, it was all essentially part of the same series where he was in the UK specifically looking for stuff from Nazi Germany and World War II. So the first episode was an hour-long episode, which is typically what all the episodes are. And he was, I forgot the name of the city he was in, but it was in the Alpine Mountains. And he was with two German um, expeditioners. And they were going through the mountains, trying to find some sort of evidence that the Nazis were in that mountain were in that mountain range because there was no battle that anyone knows of in that mountain range but based on evidence that people have collected Nazis were in that mountain range so why were these German soldiers there and a lot of people came up with because maybe they were burying the Nazi gold and it, there's this huge like controversy that the German soldiers decided that they were going to bury all of this silver and gold and, you know, after the Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trials and everything, they would come back and find it and they'd all basically be wealthy and rich and so on. So they went into the Alpines to try and find the Nazi gold, quote unquote. So they find this, you know, they zip line across these two like cliff edges to get to the other side and they have metal detectors of all things. So they're using the metal detectors on the ground where the two expeditionists had found evidence before. And then one of the 
metal detectors goes off. So they start digging in the ground and they actually find bullets. And these bullets were used on the guns that the German soldiers used back then. And I believe that the German soldiers were the only ones who used these guns. So it pretty much finding those two bullets had confirmed that at least one, maybe two Nazi soldiers were in the spores. So they start looking with the metal detectors again and they pick up another reading and it is around this boulder. So they try and pinpoint the exact area that the, I guess, metal detection is coming from and it's circling the whole boulder. So they know that there's something underneath this boulder. So the three of them move the boulder out of the way and the older gentleman who is an expeditionist, I forgot his name, I apologize, but he pulls out his digging utensil. And you know when you're gardening and you have that small shovel? So it's kind of like that. It's a knife and it's similar to that, but instead of curved like the gardening shovel, it is sharp and it has jagged parts of it as if like, you know the dents that you would draw if you're drawing Christmas tree branches? It's kind of like that. So he starts carefully trying to dig and he tells Josh, we need to be careful when we dig in the soil because it could potentially be an active landmine. And if you don't know what landmines are, basically back in World War II, and I believe World War I, um, many different groups would use landmines. So when soldiers from the opposite end and from the opposing side would come on the battlefield, they would step on a landmine and it would essentially blow up and kill the opposite soldiers. So he told Josh we need to be careful because there could potentially be a landmine here. And Josh kind of says, you know, he's like, a landmine? And the guy goes, yes, a landmine. And Josh pretty much says what I'm thinking. And he says, you see, that's a beforehand conversation. And the guy responds, well, if I told you about it, then you probably wouldn't have come. He said, no, I would have stayed in the car. And I'm thinking, exactly. So they carefully start, you know, digging away at the soil. And they are trying to find, like, pieces of metal or something. Because obviously there's metal if the metal detector went off. And they actually find a piece of leather. So they pull out the piece of leather. And one of the expeditionists tells Josh that this leather is leather from a pouch that the German soldiers would carry their gun with. So they start digging more to find the metal that set off the detector and they find some more bullets. So they said, okay, we have a piece of leather and some bullets. Let's keep digging a little bit because there's gotta be more here than just a small piece of leather. And they actually find a second piece of leather, but instead of the pouch, it is actually the, I guess you could say, exterior 
of a gas mask, and German soldiers used to carry gas masks with them in case, while they were on the battlefield, if there were toxic fumes from, you know, bombs or missiles going off, they could still breathe and they would have an advantage against the Allies. So they found the outline of a gas mask, and they keep going a little bit more, and they find a, the actual gun that the German soldier had used along with the magazine. So they said there must have been a serious reason as to why a German soldier would leave his gun, his magazine, his pouch, and his gas mask like buried in the Alpines. And honestly, at that point, I was expecting them to find a body, but they didn't, uh, thankfully. So that was really interesting. And the next episode was actually a two-hour-long, I believe it was a season finale or a season premiere, but it was a two-hour-long episode where Josh Gates was, again, in the UK. This time, instead of Germany, he was in France, specifically Normandy, um, looking for World War II you know, artifacts, memorabilia, and so on. So there were four, three or four main places that he went. The first one obviously being Normandy Beach. And he met up with this retired military man who is actually a, now he is like, um, a, he works for movies. And when it, when the movie is dealing with military scenes, he's kind of an advisor to them to tell them like, this is what happened, this is what would have happened, and so on. He's like a military advisor for movies, essentially. He worked on the movie Saving Private Ryan, which is a fantastic movie, by the way. So he meets up with him, and they kind of talk about the history of Normandy Beach and go back to D-Day and Operation Overlord and so on. And it's really interesting to me because they started talking I believe it was called Hawk Point or something like that, but it's this point on Normandy Beach that would have been essential to the Germans because it had the perfect view in the middle of two of the sections of beaches that the Allies stormed on. And originally up there, there were these huge, like, massive, like, cannons. They were guns that um, the Germans had placed there to and they could point it either direction and from hundreds of yards away they could shoot missiles at the allies coming from the water on Normandy beach and they also kind of talk about how the allies threw off the germans and did this whole thing about pretending like basically creating an entire fake invasion to throw off the Germans so that way the Allies could come through. So essentially the Allies were in England and they had to somehow along the coast of France come in to the mainland to take back Europe. So the Germans thought that they would come through this one point where it was the shortest distance between the two lands. Uh, between England and France. They thought they would come through there because it's the shortest part, you know, it logically they would come through there. 
So the Allies created, like, this whole, like, fake thing, essentially. And they took it as far as having, like, dummies pretending to be the soldiers, as well as, like, blow-up tanks. And they really kept this, like, very top secret. Unfortunately, you know, in order for it to seem realistic, they had to stage a fake kind of infantry coming in. So they had, I want to say it was around... 200 soldiers you know in the water pretending that they're about to invade and the german navy force actually set off a missile in the water and those men were killed but they didn't die for nothing you know it was because of them that the germans focused their attention up north when really hundreds of troops thousands of troops actually were going to come in from the southern end on Normandy Beach. And so there was this group of 200 men that were not going to be coming in on any of the beaches, but they were coming in on this like hawk point essentially because they figured no one would be there and those are where the massive giant guns are. And they needed those so that way they could at least have a fair chance against the Germans. So they have to climb this 100-foot cliff and actually a bomb had went off that made the 100-foot cliff more like a 40-foot cliff. So, you know, they climb it and they're being just pelted with gunfire from up above. And they finally get up to the top and they realize that there's no guns because the Germans had moved them and positioned them facing landmarks. So if the Americans and the Allies had made it inland, they could get them from inland. So, you know, he's on Normandy Beach, Josh Gates, and he goes to the Maisie Battery. And Maisie Battery is a set of land between Omaha and Utah Beach that... So, to kind of back up, there's this British World War II fanatic guy. And he, a while back, purchased a soldier, kind of a uniform from World War II. And this sounds like it's straight out of a movie and it's too good to be true, but it's 100% true. He looked in the pocket of this uniform that he had just purchased, and there was a map in it. And he opened the map, and there was an outlined area, and written on the area, which is Maisie Battery, it said, High Artillery. So, he was somehow able to purchase that Maisie Battery, and he was just like, there's got to be a reason that this was, you know, outlined. And he goes and he sees a few, like, concrete slabs in this field. And this is, like, a huge field. It's, you know, a few acres. And the grass and greenery has grown to be about as tall as me. And so he sees these concrete slabs. And at first he thinks, you know, that they're just there from maybe a housing project or something. But in the middle of the concrete slabs... Are holes and what he finds out is that these holes are actually chimneys 
So that means that there's something underground. So, you know, he starts excavating the land and pretty much finds a bunch of batteries constructed near this French village. And it's a bunch of buildings, essentially, that was kind of like, in a way, it would be considered like headquarters, I guess, for the Germans. And it was inland. And they had the giant guns that I had previously mentioned. They had 14 of them spread out all throughout this area. And basically, it was a way for them to hit the Allies coming in from the water from essentially miles away. It was so fascinating to learn about. So Josh Gates and this guy, they get like these giant bulldozers essentially, and they start digging up the earth because the buildings are underground. So then they use this um, drone that is, I think it's called LiDAR. Yes, it's called LiDAR. And basically it can take um, images of the land and strip back the greenery to just have a map of the soil. And you can see like indentations of where the soil has been removed. And there was a certain area that they had not touched yet, but there seemed to be some sort of thing underneath the soil. So they get the bulldozer and they start digging and they hit cement. So they know there's something under there. And they end up finding two buildings and they keep digging some more and they find a um, giant gun in between the two buildings. And then they finally find the doors into these buildings. So they pull back the dirt and they go into the doors and it's a bunch of moldy, murky rooms. And they're trying to find evidence as to what these rooms could have been. So they go into the first one and they find a few pieces of gas mask filters. And then they find a belt, a belt buckle that had belonged to a German soldier. And then the best part of it is they find a helmet. And the helmet is actually an SS helmet, so it was a German soldier's helmet. And that proves that German soldiers were using these buildings. And they come to the conclusion that these were artillery buildings. This is where they had all the ammunition, all of just everything in them. And then the second building is probably where they had at least 20 men staying all day and all night in these you know, they found some things that they found in some of the buildings were like batons, they found um, a stove, they found pieces of um, mugs, of plates, they found a bed frame. They like, there was so much in these. Okay, I wouldn't say there's so much, but there was a lot more than what they expected in these buildings that the Germans used to use. So then, after there, Josh Gates goes to another area, which is more of, like, the community, the village area. And he's trying to figure out the answer as to how, with everything that was going on on the beach between the Allies and the German forces, how 
all of these civilians survived D-Day? And the answer was underground. So he goes underground and with these other expeditionists and he finds these bunkers that families that lived in Normandy had to live in for six weeks straight while there is a bunch of fire going up above them to their homes and they go inside and the civilians had pretty much left it with a lot of their stuff still in there so they found the stoves that people used to cook their meals on they found animal bones from when they used to you know cut up meat they found um parts of baby dolls they found food cans and so on there was a lot more in these bunkers compared to uh, Maisie Battery. And it tells a story of, you know, like those small items tell a story of that these were real people that were stuck underground for six weeks while just chaos was erupting above them. And, you know, like you could tell this family had a little girl or two because there are two baby dolls down here. You could tell this family did this because of this item and it was just really fascinating to me so then he goes to a field where a bunch well let me back up a little bit um before he goes to the field he goes to this village that well yeah okay so he goes to this church that is next to a field and it is where the paraflighters came in so there were a lot of soldiers within the different infantries that came via um, parachute. And they were paraflighters. And paraflighters were the easiest targets because essentially they couldn't hide themselves. You know, they're just kind of flying down from the planes onto land. And they were easy targets for people to shoot down. So there is this one famous soldier, an ally soldier, who um, was a paraflighter. He was a paratrooper. My apologies. I'm kind of all over the place and talking really fast, but that's just because I'm just so excited about this and it was such a good episode. So there were some paratroopers and there was one in particular. His name was John Steele. And he was a part of the, I believe it was the 505th Infantry. Um, He was of the 82nd Airborne. And so this says that since the paratroopers were easy targets, John Steele was significant because he was one of the few not killed. He was wounded in the foot by a burst of flak. And his parachute caught on to one of the pinnacles of the church tower. And he was stuck hanging on the side of the church. So Josh Gates goes to this church and actually on the pinnacle where John Steele got caught on, they have kind of like a mannequin that is dressed as an ally World War II soldier with a parachute that just kind of dangles from this as like a commemoration to him. And John Steele actually had to just kind of hang there limply for two hours pretending to be dead. 
and the Germans finally found him and they took him prisoner. But he escaped four days later from the Germans and rejoined his division um, when the U.S. troops of the 3rd Battalion, the 505th Parachute Infantry Regime, attacked the village, capturing 30 Germans and killing another 11. He was awarded the Bronze Star um, and the Purple Heart, and then he passed away at the age of 56 of throat cancer back home in America in North Carolina. And it was just so, like, interesting to me because also in this church, they have a stained glass window with um, paratroopers and soldiers painted onto the stained glass to commemorate what happened in that community that day. And actually, there is a tavern across the street from the church that they now call, let me see if I can pronounce this, the Auberg John Steele. So it's a tavern that they named after him, and it is full of a bunch of photos, letters, and articles about John and all of the different paratroopers and the different Allied soldiers, as well as German soldiers, too. Um, so it's just kind of recollecting, recollecting what happened those few days. And so next to the church is a field where if the paratroopers didn't come in by parachute, they came with the small planes. And again, they got metal detectors and they found pieces of gliders that the planes had on them to silently come in so you wouldn't hear them come in because of these gliders. And in the, in the dirt, they actually found pieces of the glider. So that was really cool. So then he goes a little bit more into, I guess, the city, and he meets up with this guy who um, goes out a lot to the ocean, and he finds the vessels that went down during the during D-Day. And it was really cool to me because they mentioned that essentially that day that the ships went down is frozen in time because when the ship sank, basically the position of them tells you a story that historians don't get 100% accurate. So, you know, depending on where this ship went down and where this one went down, you could tell which one was battling which one and it's just essentially frozen in time. And I thought that was really cool that they brought that up. So then they actually, Josh and this guy, um, got the chance to go out and they were going to take pictures of one of the wreckages. So originally this wreckage was recognized as a certain ship that belonged to the Allies. And for a long time, people knew it as this wreckage is this ship. And they're out there taking pictures because they were going to create a 3D model of the wreckage so they could kind of examine it further. And upon creating the 3D image, they realized that it was misidentified and that they were finally able to correctly identify this ship. And by 
correctly identifying the ship, they could correctly identify how many people were on board, and they could know the final resting spots of the soldiers and these crewmen. So then they tried to find the USS Partridge. And I know this is kind of an insensitive joke to say, but I was trying to lighten the mood because at this point, it was just really heavy. I said, well, clearly the partridge is not in a pear tree. But, you know, I'm sorry. I was trying to lighten the mood. That was my mistake. Yeah. So they go and they find another wreckage that they believed that was possibly the partridge. But it ended up not being that. But on the bright side, they discovered a new wreckage and they were able to identify it and identify the final resting place of the crewman. So then they get a reading that there is some sort of thing, I guess. I don't know the correct terminology in the water. So they go down and they're trying to investigate and see what this is. And they're taking pictures of it. And then the guy tells Josh, he says, don't touch it. That is a non-detonated bomb. It could still be live. So then Josh is telling his camera guy, Evan, like, back up, back up. And so basically, the airplanes back in World War II used to drop bombs with parachutes. And they had magnetic detonators. So as soon as something metal stuck to the magnet, the bomb would explode and chaos would erupt. So this one landed in the water and it had not detonated yet and it could potentially still be live. So they had to back up, but they also had to take pictures of it because they had to report it to the authorities like, hey, there might be a live bomb out here. And this guy, <laughs> the guy who's taking pictures, really, like, he has a lot more bravery than I do. Because he's trying to show Josh, he said, this is the fuse and the detonator right here. And I literally screamed. I was like, well, don't touch it. And my aunt was just like, he doesn't have metal on his fingers. He's fine. But if he were to turn around and his tank hit it, then they'd be in trouble. I was like, still, don't touch it. So then they swim back up to the surface and they tell them that there is a life bomb under there. So they have to report it in to the authorities. And they said, we have a potentially live World War II bomb at this point. And they come back on the radio and they say, get the coordinates and bring them to us immediately. So they go back into town and they give the coordinates so that way a French Navy vessel can go out there, safely move the bomb like a hundred or so meters out where it can't affect anyone inland and then detonate it safely out in the middle of the ocean. So <laughs> this was a two hour long episode and I just... You know, I love adventure and I love history and finding out different things and also, you know, discovering the stuff. So this show is right up my alley. And I also really am fascinated by the untold stories of World War II because there are still 
so many stories that we are learning about every day. And each year we have fewer and fewer people who were there to witness this just large moment of history, if not the biggest moment in history. And every day we have fewer and fewer people there, fewer and people, fewer and fewer people left that were there to witness it and be here today to tell the stories, you know, and it wasn't that long ago. It was only 75 years ago and just the inhumane, just evil that happened, it serves as a reminder that this evil was once a reality and it's up to us to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself. And it is a known fact that history has repeated itself. I mean, you know, we had World War One, which was the war to end all wars, and people thought there's never going to be anything similar to this. And then a few short years later, we get the biggest just tragedy in all of history with the Holocaust and the Nazis and all of this. And it just this history as eerie and as heavy as it may be it is still fascinating because it motivates us to never let this kind of evil get to the point in which it did in the 40s ever again <sighs> i know i fangirled a lot today today's episode was a bit of a longer one I want to keep these all between half an hour and an hour long just because I know that people have other things that they like to do and I know that if I talk forever then I'm just going to wear myself out. But without further ado, it's the end of the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to follow me, you can check out themindfulgemini.com and see some of my recent posts as well as the top of the webpage will have all of my links. You can follow my Pinterest, my Twitter, and my Instagram are Nikki X Daniels, N I K K I X D A N I E L S. Um, my Spotify is Nikosha underscore love underscore. I'm not going to do current jams today just because this podcast is already incredibly long, but. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and I will see you guys next week. Bye!